Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. Our regular listeners know that we've had the honor of meeting some of the true pioneers of business and industry on this show. Today, we have the honor of meeting one of the best-known, most impactful pioneers of the private equity, venture capital, and investing world, someone whom I and many others consider a titan in his field, on whose shoulders an entirely new iteration of his industry was built. Our guest was born in New York City. He attended the Taft School in Connecticut and ultimately Harvard College before leaving at the age of only 19 to begin a career in finance at Lazard. He worked at Lazard for 13 years and quickly demonstrated his investment aptitude. He became head of research and was a partner by the age of 29. In 1967, he left his great career at Lazard to join up with Lionel Pincus and ultimately go on to co-lead the rise of the venerable and highly successful private equity firm Warburg Pincus. While at Warburg Pincus, our guest was, in effect, the firm's chief investment officer, helping his company build the financial industry's first $100 million fund in 1981 and then its first billion-dollar fund in 1986. He and Mr. Pincus ultimately raised billions of dollars, investing in many companies across many industries, including 20th Century Fox, Humana, and Mattel. He was a member of the boards of 20th Century Fox and several other prominent companies and personally led the financial rescue of Mattel while quadrupling his company's investment in seven years. Just a few years later, he also led the successful, high-profile financial rescue of Mellon Bank. He served Warburg Pincus as president and vice chairman until 2002 when he and Mr. Pincus both stepped down for the next generation of leaders. During his tenure, our guest was instrumental in expanding the firm by an amazing 150 times. He also led the firm's expansion overseas in the 1980s and 1990s, establishing offices in London, Hong Kong, and Bombay. When he left, he became a senior advisor for Warburg Pincus, as well as a special limited partner of the firm. But our guest wasn't finished yet. In 2003, he went on to found the investment firm New Providence Asset Management, serving as its chairman and general partner. Unsurprisingly, New Providence was also highly successful. In fact, by way of full disclosure, I considered it so successful that it was one of the great honors of my professional career when our guest and his team agreed to join my company and our sponsor, The Colony Group, through a merger. And as much as he is an investment pioneer, our esteemed guest is also an avid philanthropist, supporter of communities, and overall leader of many. He has served in the boards of the New York City Ballet, the Miami City Ballet, and the Hirshhorn Museum. He is chairman emeritus of the New York City Ballet, Prep for Prep, and the Taft School, and a life trustee of the Jewish Museum. He was formerly a trustee of New York University and the Stern School of Business, as well as chairman of Third Way, a political think tank. He's also served as chairman of Christie's Advisory Board. Please welcome the extraordinary John Vogelstein. Welcome, John. Thank you. Happy to be with you. So happy and honored to have you. John, to get us started, I'm going to ask a general question about your life. What did I miss in my introduction? Maybe tell us a little bit more about your life that we might not necessarily learn about you online. I think you, I think you covered it pretty well. I really do. 
How about family? You raised, you, raised, you raised a number of things that I've forgotten about. <laughs> well, I do my research, John. If people take the time to come on the show, it's important that I owe them the respect to, to learn everything I possibly can. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your family? Well, I have two sons. One of them works with you. You know him well. His name is Andrew. I do. The other one, the other one's name is Fred. He lives in Berkeley, California, and was both an author and a, uh, well, basically was an author. He wrote a very interesting book, the name of which I can't quite remember. It had to do with Apple. It had to do with, with whether Apple or Google was going to outshine the other. And I think his conclusion was that they were both going to do extraordinarily well, and that, of <laughs> course, was the correct conclusion. He also has worked uh, for a num- number of magazines. So that's my family. It's not it's not extensive, but it is that. Uh, <clears throat> my wife Barbara was at one point a partner of Warburg Pinkins and went on to become a partner of Apex Partners, a British-based private equity investment firm. So her exposure to the same industry as as, as I was in was extensive as well. So we have a, she and I share an awful lot in common. Thank you, John. And again, just just to to talk a little bit more about your biography, you went to Taft and to Harvard. Can we assume that that means you were a great student as a child and as a young man? Well, I dropped out of Harvard, as I guess you probably know. I was always a pretty good student. I, I graduated from Taft as cum laude which I achieved in the, in the spring of my junior year, of which there were only five of us at that point out of a, whole, out of a class of 100. So I guess uh, you could say I was near the top of my class, my class. I was not the top of my class, but I was pretty high up. Mm-hmm. And you dropped out of Harvard, which, which is the same as many people who have gone on to have extraordinary careers such as yourself. I did I did read an oral history about you where you were interviewed extensively and there's a good transcription of it for those people who want to learn more about John. So I, I, I've heard what you've said in the past about dropping out, but maybe speak to our audience about why you would drop out of Harvard at the age of 19. Well, I guess what the trigger was, I had had enough school in my opinion. I, I, <laughs> I had been at Taft for four years. They were That was a pretty tough place then. And I got to Harvard, and an awful lot of what I was studying, I had already studied at Taft. So I spent a lot of time going to going home to New York and partying when I did that. And one day I was in New York, and I had a paper due for English class, and I didn't have any books or anything like that. So I opened my father's very, very large dictionary, and looked up the poem that I was supposed to write about, and there it was in black and white. So I wrote a paper based upon what I could leave, using Webster as my as my textbook, sent it to my roommate who turned it in, and I got an A. And I said to myself, well, okay, if I can get an A uh, in in a manner such as that, why am I why am I going to this place? And right then and there, I said, I got to quit. So I did. I love it. I and love it. And, and as we know, a lot of very successful people did the same as I and quit. Most of them did a lot better than I did, but I guess I did okay. Yeah, I would say you did okay. I, I, I read that you had aspired to become an English major. I had planned to become an English yeah, major. Yeah, and that you were a fan of Shakespeare. Yes, I was. And one of the reasons I, want, I, I was interested in becoming an English major is I had been chairman of the newspaper when I was at Taft, and I really enjoyed myself, so I figured, why not keep doing this? Okay. So when did you realize you were going to become a professional investor? I get, I, right about, well, when I dropped out of Harvard, I went straight to Lazard Prayer, where there was a connection that I had developed over a couple of summers or summer work. And I I guess I'd made a pretty good impression, so it said, if you ever want to, if you ever want to Come here and work. Just tell us. We'll take you back. So one way or another, I did that, and they took me back, and the rest is history. 
Yeah, I, I read that you did start there early and and that they had been after you and certainly didn't care about your whether you graduated from Harvard. Tell us about that part of your career when you were at Lazard. And uh, yeah, as you do that, maybe just tell us a, a little bit about it and also why you would eventually leave. You, you became a partner at a young age. So tell us about that part of your career. Well, the senior partner of Lazard's career in those days was a man by the name of Andre Meyer, who was a brilliant banker. He was, a, he was French, had come to America during the war and stayed here and had was responsible for building Lazard back into a significant firm, which it had once been and then sort of slipped out. Perhaps because of how he had to, how he had to maneuver to get to the top of the firm, or perhaps just it was his personality, but he was an extraordinarily difficult man to work for. And one day we had a disagreement. And if you have an, if you, if you're in your late twenties or early thirties and you have a disagreement with the senior partner of the firm who's in his late fifties or early sixties, guess who wins the argument? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I decided that uh, at that point, the, smart thing for me to do was to just leave and go try to try to find something else to do in finance. Yeah. I, and as it, as it happened, Lionel Pinkers, who had, who had been a good friend of mine for a number of years, had dropped out of a smaller Wall Street firm and had started or had, had joined a firm that was then called E.M. Warburg and Company, which was not a significant business. It was, it was, it was, it wasn't a shell, but it was not a, it was not a significant firm in any way, shape, or form. And his, his goal, which we talked about it, was to build it into a major firm. And I said to him, I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to do what you did. I'm dropping out of a significant firm. Would you have a spot for me? He said, sure. Why not? So I joined, I joined him. I forget the year at, what was then called E.M. Warburg and Company, E being Eric Warburg. And, and then E.M. Warburg became Warburg Pickers, I think, in 1971 or two, which is when we raised our first private equity fund. And as a result, there had been a couple of others in the business, in the business formally. And we, that fund, is which has now been been succeeded and succeeded and succeeded at the firm is was the was for many years the oldest private equity firm because the others a couple of others had started before us and then they 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 disappeared so Warburg Bank is is today the oldest private equity firm in in the country maybe in the world so that's. That's sort of a capsule of the story. Mm. Yeah, and, and and you've spoken about how it really was different, that, that as you began to work with Lionel Pincus, you had some choices as to what you wanted to do and how you were going to evolve that business that this whole world of private private equity, which is so ubiquitous today, was certainly not at the time. Maybe speak a little bit about, about that and the decision-making. Well, we knew, we, both of us knew we liked making private investments because we had done some of that where we were and Lionel had done some of that for his own account. So our, the idea was we were going to build a firm and make private investments. And it was, there wasn't a private equity business at that point. So we were, we, we sort of were form free and had to figure out what we were going to do, how we were going to do it what exactly we were going to pursue. And it wasn't, we raised our first fund uh, in 1971 or two, I think it was 1971. And the next, there had been a couple of other firms uh, who were, were started about the same time and they, they did not make it mm-hmm. or they decided not to continue. So by the time we got to the end of the decade, because that was, a, it was a, the 1970s were a very, very difficult period of time to invest. By the time we got to the end of the 1970s, there began to be, and we got the 1970s behind us, there began to be a couple of other 
firms that went into the private equity business doing more or less the same thing that we were doing. But in terms of who today has been in the private equity business longest, it is Warburg, it is Warburg Pinkett. And and as we think about the success you had and how you, in my opinion, helped put private equity on the map, it, it is it is curiosity as to why you were successful and others were not. And so my question for you is how intentional was this success? In, in other words, did you have a clear business plan? Did you and, and, uh, and, and Mr. Pincus go and write out a business plan, state of vision, and this is what you're going to accomplish? Or did you really just take it sort of one day at a time? We did not write out a business plan. We knew what we wanted to do, which was to make private investments. And it was sort of form-free. I mean, we at one point, well, for example, in the 1970s, we had a really bad stock market as a result of which the world was being given away on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And we said to one another one day, why are we trying to do deals when we can take positions in companies on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange at five, six times earnings and have liquid holdings rather than lock up money in private deals at a premium? So we did that for a while. And it was basically taking advantage of investment opportunities as they came along and situations as, as, as the world evolved. Yeah. You, you, your story just strikes me as, as someone who just sort of is confident, knows, knows how to think, think things through, solve problems and, 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 and just search for answers and, and not get too bogged down in in terms of planning or 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 complying with certain procedures or policies and i i read that one of the reasons you left lazard is because you felt that you were you were sort of doomed to become i think your word was an automaton that you 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 didn't want to be controlled and you wanted the freedom to go out and do things and do i have that right yes you do yeah yeah that's that's really that's that's my experience with you personally as well. You have a penchant for 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 brevity and for for just being confident in in your decisions, right or wrong. <laughs> and many of them have been wrong, but fortunately, I think more have been right than wrong. I think <laughs> that's safe to okay. say. <laughs> I think it worked you, out okay. <laughs> I certainly think that's the case. So you effectively co-led the firm, or at least that's what I've read. I don't want to make that assumption, but I've read that you and Lionel Pincus co-led the firm. Let me first ask you a question. You, you mentioned that you had become friendly with him. Do you remember how you met him in the first place? Yeah, we were, we were both taking out women who went to Vassar at the same time. So we met and became friends. Ah, great. So and, uh, we were in our early twenties. I was in my very. I'm, I may have been still have been a teenager, but certainly Lionel was three or four years older than I. So, but we were awful young when all this happened. Are you aware that you were mentioned in a recent Harvard Business Review article about the idea of co-business leaders? No. Oh, you're not. Well, <laughs> there's actually an article that came up fairly recently. And it speaks to this concept of co-leadership. The conventional wisdom is that someone has to be in charge. And yet this author spoke to – I'll send you a copy of the article, John. But this particular author spoke about examples where co-leadership has worked rather beautifully. And the exact quote referred to your success working with Lionel Pincus. And what it says is, at Warburg Pincus – which was run jointly for two decades by Lionel Pincus and John Vogelstein, Pincus raised the funds and Vogelstein invested them. The more distinct the skills of each, the better. When their skills overlap, conflict becomes more likely. Did they get that right? That's more or less correct, yes. And But, I mean, just to be clear about it, he had the final say if we ever got to that. I mean, his name was, his name was on the door, if you will. So if there had ever been a dispute, his, which, which there was not during our entire lifetime, but had there been, his word would have been final, not mine. Hmm. Interesting. But you just were able to work together for all of those years, and 
and you did effectively co-lead the firm. So you were basically CIO. He was the fundraiser, and and you figured it out. Yeah, that's exactly correct. Yeah. John, what was your greatest deal? Are you able to to choose your, the greatest deal you ever d- did, or is that like choosing the, your, your favorite child? I think it's sort of what you just said. I mean, there were an awful lot of interesting and successful deals, and some of them I did, some of them I participated in, some of them I approved. It's really impossible to say this was better than that, and that was better than this. The one in that the firm made most money in, I was responsible for approving, but I certainly didn't do it. In other words, I was chief investment officer effectively at the time, and uh, my partner, Bill Janeway, came up with a company called B, B for Boy EA Systems, which the firm invested uh, $50 million in and took out $5 billion. So that's, I think that's the best deal the firm ever did. But I, I can only, the only credit I can take for it is I had to approve it being done, which I did do, thank God. <laughs> yeah. I am going to come back to a couple of deals because I'm curious and I want to ask you about them. But before I do that, one of the things that I also read about you was that, is that you, you uh, at times, you understood the need to, to, to just step out of the markets altogether. And uh, I read that you had actually been pretty prescient about the, 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 the internet bubble, the dot-com bubble, and that at some point you just said enough is enough and you pulled out and returned a, a bunch of cash to your investors. We, we did do that, yeah. Yeah. In, in, in retrospect, we didn't pull out for enough. We didn't return enough cash <laughs> because when 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 everything collapsed in the shortly after the turn of the century, there was there was no place to hide if you still had an investment portfolio. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's said that the Market Timers Hall of Fame is an empty room. But but if you if you pull back <laughs> dramatically at that point. Maybe maybe you, you 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 could have entered into that Hall of Fame because that was a big move to be able to do that. What I read is that you returned about half the cash at that point to your investors. My memory is we returned twelve billion dollars, but that's, that's hmm. I could be off by a by a considerable amount. But that's what sort of sticks into my head. One of the deals that you're most famous for is the Mattel deal. Could you could you speak to that deal a bit? Just tell us a little bit about it. Well, I got involved in the mid-1970s because Mattel was in significant financial difficulties. And when you're in the private equity investment business, you look around for businesses that are struggling for one reason or another, hoping to find one that's struggling but is not mortally wounded. And that's sort of what happened. And these things often happen by accident. And I became quite friendly with the man who was then running it. His name was Arthur Spear. And we put in, I think we put in $35 million to keep the company from going bankrupt. And which we did. And it turned around. And well, one thing led to another. And I think we actually made us, took a second bite and put more money in. Anyway, we made several times our money. Unfortunately, along the way, we had to ask Mr. Spear to step out because mm-hmm. although he saved the company, he was in the process of pulling it back down. And it was quite obvious that he was not the right person to continue to run it over the long term. Mm-hmm. So we did that, and we ended up making quite a lot of money out of it. And saved the company. We did save the company. We, and in fact, we probably saved it twice. But um, what about the Mellon Bank deal? So I read some interesting things about that deal. I think at one point you said something to the effect of, and forgive me if I have these numbers wrong, that the company was worth about $750 million, but you had to invest about another $500 million in it just to save it. My understanding is you effectively deployed a strategy to isolate the bank from bad assets. And this is long before that became a popular thing to do in the 2008 great financial crisis. Tell us a bit about the Mellon Bank deal. Well, what you just described is known as a good bank, bad bank structure. And what you do is to 
go into a situ go into a, a, a money lending situation, maybe a bank or a finance company, and separate out those assets that are in trouble or, 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 or that are dull debt because your bank you lend money. So those those assets that we that, re- that reflect loans that are in trouble and put those into separate vehicles so that the management, the ongoing management can focus primarily almost solely on what the good assets are and how to put more good assets on the books. And then you have a separate management that is, that is charged with the job of liquidating the bad assets and collecting as much money out of them as is possible. So that's the form, and that, that format has continued. I'm not, I don't think we invented it, but it certainly has, has been done a number of times and quite successfully by, by ours, by, by others than us as well. And, um, we did that with Mellon. It turned out to be a big success over half a dozen years or so. And I forget, we made many times our money on that investment and it was a large investment so it was a significant uh, success for Wilbur Figures. Yeah, I, I wouldn't purport to say that you invented it either, but it does appear from at least from what I've read that 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 people look at that as the example ultimately that did put the strategy on the map. That must be something that you feel pretty proud of. It, it was one more successful deal. That's all I can say. You're a humble guy, John. For everything you've done, well, you're, you're, you're humble. But uh, you know, it, it, that was a structure. It wasn't. It wasn't what made this. It wasn't what made the investment successful. It was a structure that helped it become successful. Mm. And the ongoing management, which was new, they did a very good job. And essentially, the market turned. So you had. As it, with so many private investments, you have to have a you have to have a number of things going for you at the same time. You need the right financial markets, you need the right business climate, you need the right management, and so it, it, it's the confluence of all of those things that can make for a very successful investment. As I think back, almost every really successful investment we made had most of those elements in it. John, I'm going to ask you a question that I have to believe you've been asked a thousand times, and it's the question everyone wants to know the answer to, and that is, what are the secrets to being one of the great investors of our time? Is it something that we can control? Is it something that is learned? Or is it just something, is is at least part of it just innate? Do you have to be born with it? I think that great investors are born with a certain kind of a mindset that that makes them think differently than most people do because investing money is a very peculiar activity. And the things that make investments successful are oftentimes not projectable. And now there have been a huge number of successful investments over the years but by by many different firms, but it's understanding what the business is and understanding how the market will judge that business if it is successful. Take those two things together, because if you take something that isn't successful and improve it, but the market is not interested for whatever reason, it doesn't make any difference because ultimately the market is is the judge of whether you will be successful successful or not. So part of it is understanding the business, part of it is understanding what the market is going to think about the business, part of it is the ability to negotiate a proper, a proper transaction. It's, and the weightings of those things in any transaction are going to be different. So there's it, nothing very scientific about it, I guess I have to say, artistic rather than scientific. You've actually spoken a bit about that and thinking about it as as an art as much as science or maybe more than science, as you just said. And, and one of the things that you I, – I really appreciated this. I don't know if it's this simple, but one of the things you said in the past was that you can teach someone to draw, 
But that doesn't mean that that person is going to be Picasso. That is that Picasso clearly <laughs> was born with, with, some, with some innate ability to become what he has. So it is more of an art than a science. It is more an art than a science. There's no yeah. question about it. I, I want to probe something else as we think about the success you've had and just hearing you speak about your past and, and seeing you in action, which I've had the privilege of doing. One of the things you've talked about is is, is committees, and you, you've spoken about how sometimes it's difficult to make decisions, and in particular good decisions, in committee format. I know there are lots of benefits to working in a committee, but you, you've spoken about, about that, that the challenge of that, and you've spoken also about how in, in your time at, at Warburg Pincus, it was smaller, at least initially, and in that you found a lot of freedom in, in, in it being smaller and not working with big committees. Well, <laughs> my favorite story is one that I, I, I learned from my first direct boss, who was a man by the name of Hedinger who was a brilliant investor at Lazard Fair. Uh, I, I, I learned more from him about investing than I ever have learned from anybody else. That's number one. Number two, he had a favorite saying, which I have never forgotten to the point where my wife yells at me tonight when I bring it up, which is that when the devil decided that nothing should be done, he formed the first committee. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't know that I've heard have, that before, have, actually. I've always, I've always borne that, in, borne that in my mind. Collective decision making is, is by and large, not a good way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need decisions made by a very small group of people, and and in most cases, quite quite quickly. So I think that's a, I think that's a fair way to put it. That successful investing is. Ultimately, the result of a very small number of people who have a, you call it an almost an artistic talent that enables them to do things that most other people can't do. That's fascinating. As you, as we think about the, the modern world of investment committees and the way decisions are made, it's, it's just interesting to hear you speak about this, but you're obviously an example of being extremely successful when not bogged down with too much structure around yourself. So I don't like I don't like I I've never been much for structure. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah, I I've I've seen that. And despite all of your successes and you've had many, you don't seem to seek out too much attention. Is that right? Are you do you intentionally try to keep a low profile? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, while keeping a low profile, you've had quite an impact in the nonprofit space for some very high-profile organizations. And, and while we could sit and talk all day about your investment career, it seems that you've made a, a big difference not only in that space but also in the, in the nonprofit space and working with various communities. How did you pick the causes that you, that you ultimately decided to work on? Well, some of them are conscious, like – Prep for Prep, which is an organization that seeks to seek successfully to improve the educational opportunities and education itself of minority students who are reasonably reasonably poor. In other words, we're not looking for somebody who comes from a wealthy family from from a fancy from a fancy country. We're we're looking for kids who are demonstrably intelligent whose families are low income and need an opportunity to get a first class education. And then we, we then prep for prep in effect puts them on scholarship and brings their usually starts in about the fifth or sixth grade. And by the time that they're in the eighth or ninth grade, they're ready to go mainstream into into first grade schools. Both to both the day schools around New York City and half a dozen boarding schools. And the result over the, over now, it started in the late 1970s, so it's been there for a long time. I mean, we're pushing 50 years old. It isn't quite there yet. It has been heartwarming. You know, we've done a, it, the organization has done a lot of good. 
So it's activities such as that have always intrigued me. Mm. Speak to some of the other ones. How did you get into the ballet? Well, the sort of by accident, the woman to whom I was married at the time fancied herself as a ballet dancer hmm. and actually had a ballet school in Nyack, I think it was. And so I got a little, I got a little interested in it. And if you, if you know, know, if you know about ballet, the name George Balanchine will mean something to you. Yes. And the New York City Ballet was created by him. And it was then and is today an absolutely unusual, unusually unique, almost totally unique dance organization. So I, the chairman of it at that point, now the, I don't know, the mid 1980s, mid 1980s, was a pretty good friend of mine. We we're having lunch one day. We began to talk about ballet and he looked at me and said, would you like to go on our board? And I said, sure, why not? So that got, that one thing led to another. And 15 years later, I became chairman. A lot of, a lot, a lot of stuff like that happens by accident. Mm-hmm. And maybe just speak briefly about the Taft School. You talked about it being a, I think you used the word difficult place back in the day. It's located in Connecticut. You've stayed very much connected with that organization and have been one of its largest supporters. Speak to that a little bit, please. Well, I was there for four years, and it was very, very, I graduated in 1952. And it was a very, very strict, difficult place for a young person to be. And when I left, I said, well, I I never want to see this place again. (laughs) And as it turned out, um, five, seven years later, the then head of the school came to see me and said a couple of your old teachers said I should look you up and get to know you. So we we became friendly and one thing led to another and I don't, I don't, no, it was not he. So I I got involved with the school and I sent my two sons there. And one day I got a call from the then headmaster who was one after the one that I had just mentioned. And saying, would you, would you like to go on our board? I said, sure, why not? So in the early 1980s, I went on the board. Some years later, I became chairman of the board. And one thing led to another, led to another, led to another. But life is like that. You have to start somewhere and then you just keep at it. And eventually things be, think, eventually good things can happen if, if, if you, if you're serious about what you're doing and you work hard. Yeah, it's a it's a great institution, and from what I've learned about it from from you and from your son, it's a very impactful organization. So it, it just must feel it must feel great. You do you feel an obligation to give back? Is that what what drives all of this? Just thinking about making it a better world for the future. Don't we all have to do that? I think so, John. I think so. I'm not sure everyone th- feels that way, but but I certainly feel well, that way. Well, put it this way. One should feel that way because nobody's entitled. So you, so you really have to, you really have to do to make the world better. You have to go out and do some things. And and I've been fortunate. I've, I've found the right things to do, and or some of the right things to do. I guess I can put it that way. Mm. We we've talked about John Vogelstein, the investor. We've talked about John Vogelstein, the philanthropist. I'd like to spend just a few minutes speaking about John Vogelstein, the leader. So it seems to me that you didn't just lead Warburg Pincus and New Providence Asset Management. You've had leadership positions at Lazard, and you were the chairman or chairman emeritus at, well, as we just discussed, a whole bunch of nonprofits, and we didn't even get to all of them. How do you think about leadership? Well, I think it's mostly about setting an example. If you don't do things, if you don't try to do things right yourself, you can't expect others who are working for you or with you to do things right either. So you have to think carefully about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what you're trying to accomplish. And then if you have people you're working with, let's just say, or who in some cases are working for you, uh, they can, they can pick up and learn a lot. 
you you once said that someone you once worked with, and I will not name names, but someone you once worked once worked with became an example to you of how you never want to be. And I don't know who you're talking about. I can I can think of a few of those. Yeah. Well, I, I anyone who wants to look that up can go look it up. You did say that once, but and and is that because you 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 see this need to nurture people and uh, and let them become their best person, not not overly tamp them down? I, I can't I can't really answer that. Okay. I, I just don't know what the answer is. Okay. Ever consider writing an autobiography, John? I'm sorry? Have you ever considered writing about your life and your experiences for others to learn from for future generations? Well, periodically somebody pushes that idea at me. My wife has done it and a few other people have done it. I sort of resisted it. I'm not seeking I'm not seeking the limelight. I'm just not part of my soul. That is clearly the case. I, I again, I think that you you have a remarkable amount of humility for all the success that you've had, John. What do you do for fun? Well, I still play. You know, I'm 88 years old, so, uh, so I still so, so I, I don't do I don't do any active really active sports. I can still swing a golf club and say it's unacceptable. Well, now only nine holes. I can still play an acceptable nine holes of golf, mm-hmm. but I, I I was never a great athlete. I'm just not that coordinated. But and one thing, one thing that Barbara, my, my wife, and I have done is we put together a, frankly, really nice collection of paintings and sculptures, which is which has given us enormous pleasure to do, and uh, frankly, has been quite successful. We've worth an awful lot more than we paid for it right now. Mm. Of course, all of your investments turn out that way, it seems. I'm just joking. No, some don't. That is certainly incorrect. I know, I know. Unfortunately. I know. Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. So, John, we're now going to move into what we call our Extraordinary Teaching segment. Seeking the Extraordinary presents Extraordinary Teachings, a deeper look at the qualities that allow people to do extraordinary things. And we're going to ask you questions that we ask other people who have appeared in our show. And the first question is, what's been your most satisfying accomplishment in life so far? Investment, philanthropy, family, otherwise. Everything's on the table. What's been your most successful accomplishment? Well, I'd say they're really three. I became a good investor. Somebody can say a very good investor. I have tried to do a lot of good in terms of not-for-profit kinds of activities. And I've had real pleasure in putting together the art collection I just spoke of. Mm. So take those three things. Mm. Nice. Do you have any regrets? Well, I have to say that my up until I up until Barbara then named Manfrey and I decided that we should get married, my marital lives have been pretty tumultuous. Since then, which is now well over 25 years ago, it's been terrific. But I had a I had a lot of trouble settling down for a while. Well, I would just say personally, I've met Barbara, and you've done very well to to, to choose Barbara. I, I, indeed, Barbara. I have. Yeah, indeed, yeah. I have. Yeah, she's pretty special. John, what single tip could you offer that has helped you be your most extraordinary self? I would have to say, always tell the truth, uh, both in terms of who, how you appear to others, and Almost more importantly, what you think of yourself. Mm. I mean, don't 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 kid yourself that uh, if something's wrong and you did it wrong, admit it and try to fix it. Don't 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 hide it. 
Mm-hmm. So I would have to say truth-telling is really important, both to others and to yourself. I love that. Great answer. And, well, my next question is usually what's the best advice you've ever given or received, but is that the best advice that, that, that you've ever given or received, tell the truth? Yes. Okay, yes, good absolutely. answer. Yeah, You're not going to do better than that. What have been your, your biggest learning opportunities? Some people might call them mistakes. I'm guessing that you don't think of life that way. What have been the biggest learning opportunities for you? Well, the most difficult one was my experience at Lazard Frere, where I had gone when I was 19 years old. I had been very successful, as, as, as happens to 19-year-olds. By the time I was in my late 20s, I had done an awful lot that people that age never did. And I figured, well, this is my, this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life and so on and so forth. And then for one reason or another, I got crossways with this very difficult senior partner and say, hey, I can't live like this. I'm going to get out. So that was, that was really, really, that was really tough. Because when you start at 19, you're sort of insecure. You build a success and you say, hey, this is great. I'm going to keep going. And then you wake up one day and say, oh, this isn't going to work. you got to get out of here. That, that was about as difficult as anything I've ever had to live through. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Three more questions, John, and and then we'll finish this up. The next question for you is, who are your key role models or mentors? Well, I'll start with my father, who was a, an extraordinarily intelligent, successful, and amazingly ethical human being. So a lot of a lot of that rubbed off on me. Unfortunately, he died when I was twenty-five or twenty-six years old. So that left a real hole in my heart. Yeah. But what I learned from him and the years that he was alive has been a base of how I thought about life. So that was extraordinary. From a professional standpoint, there was a man at Azard Prayer whose name was Hettinger, who I've said was and will always be the greatest investor I ever met. And I learned an enormous amount from him about investing money. So if you wanted two people that really had profound impact on me, I would say those two individuals. Thank you. Do you have a personal mission? Well, at 88, if I, if I hadn't, if I, if I did have one, it has either been satisfied or it never will be. Um, the, I guess the, the, the answer to that is really twofold. Is partially to be successful, both in what what one accomplished, and then frankly the the money that one one could make, and to leave this world knowing that you've done some good, because money is important, but it's certainly not nowhere near everything that you that you need to accomplish. And I think I've done a fair amount of good for an awful lot of different causes that I felt were important. And so, so the, those two things. And, and so the last question is typically about legacy. So is that your legacy, that you have made the world a better place through your efforts? Well, it's a big world, so the impact you can have, that one person can have, unless you're Franklin Roosevelt, is not all that large. But you certainly, I, I certainly have the feeling to have tried to do what I can to make things better. And not, not, not at all self-seeking. Just like to have the feeling that what you touched worked out and did some good for other people. I'd like to to add to that, if if you don't mind. It's your legacy, and and who am I to to add to it? But just having experienced uh, part of what you've brought to this world, I think you've also been very important in in teaching a whole generation of people about investing, and frankly, also a lesson. You spoke about leadership through example, a lesson around humility to be to be coupled with great success. Well, you're nice to say that. And I will say that having watched Andrew closely, 
for the period of time starting when he began to work toward putting Providence into your firm, I watched him evolve there. So the, the great experience for him, and that has a fair amount to do with, with you and what you created before. So I, I maybe we can call it a mutual admiration society. Well, thank you so much, John. I, it's really been an honor to work with Andrew, and I do see a lot of you in him, this this great respect for the importance of investing, and also, like you, seeing it as an art form, understanding that it's something that can be taught, but that certain people perhaps have more innate ability and the need to nurture that, but also just great humility and uh, and a desire to, to, to work for the greater good. I don't know Fred as well. Well, I, I know Fred by really online. I follow him on, on social media, and uh, and I admire him as well. And, of course, I see Barbara and all the great work that she does. And, uh, and again, I think it's just part of your legacy, John. It, it is a mutual admiration club, and I just want to thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic having you, and, and I, I'm grateful not just as your host but also as someone – who has had the opportunity to work with you. And it's been an honor. Thank you, John. Well, I, I want to thank you for having created what you created and for putting your arms around New Providence because we could not have found a better place to end up than as part of your firm. So. Thank you. And that is the extraordinary John Vogelstein. Thank you, John. And thank welcome. you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony Group. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ to learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary. Extraordinary.